Well, good morning. Well, for this new year, let's read the word that calls us to worship. And uh, today it comes from Psalm 96 and 97. Sing a new song to the Lord. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Each day proclaim the good news that he saves. Publish his glorious deeds among the nations. Tell everyone about the amazing things he does. His lightning flashes out across the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and every nation sees his glory. The word of the Lord will join me now in prayer. Well, Father God, creator, Redeemer, Lord of all the earth, you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. Thank you for loving us with an always and forever, never giving up on us kind of love. We praise your holy name this morning. As we begin a new year, we look backward at the year that was and we thank you for your many gifts. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for keeping us in your love. And although we may have disappointments and frustrations over things that could have been or should have been or might have been, Help us to give it all over to you, God, because we know that you work with everything that happens to orchestrate it toward the good. And as we look forward to a new year with hopes and dreams for this coming year, help us to put our hope in you. For you who began a good work in us will not give up on us because you are good. Help us to trust in your provision. Help us to turn our eyes upon you so that the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Keep us safe in your loving arms. Make your face shine upon us. In your mercy, protect us from the evil one. And we lift up those who are hurting in our body, in our community, in our world. Would you bring light in the midst of darkness and comfort in the midst of pain and suffering. And we lift up Eugene to you as he brings your word to us today. Give him clarity of mind and give us soft hearts that we may receive your word. In Jesus' precious name, amen. And now we turn our attention to our sermon today. The first of Eugene's first series here at PBCC, and he'll be um, starting a series in Colossians. And uh, for our scripture reading, we typically read a passage from scripture. But today, we're going to read the Apostles' Creed. Uh, And actually, we're going to read the Apostles' Creed every Sunday for uh, the month of January by a different person or group. Uh, creeds are uh, summaries of our faith. So it's great to read them because they're, they, they act 
a bit like a confession. This is what we believe. They also protect the mysteries, and the mysteries of our faith, the mysteries of the Trinity, of who God is and what God has done. And then reading it together as a family um, unifies us and also reminds us that we're a small part of the large people of God. So we're going to read the Apostles' Creed every Sunday through the month of January. So now here, I'm going, to, I'm going to just read it myself this morning. So here, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our God. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. All right. Well, thank you so much for the welcome, Sean, and thank you for yeah, just leading us in this worship today. Good morning, PBCC. Happy New Year. So I've been given the privilege of delivering the first five sermons of the year 2022. It was originally four, but I begged and pleaded for one more week, actually. Um, and in, Because in these five weeks, in these five sermons, we'll be beginning a new sermon series from a part of the Bible that, as I understand it, PBCC hasn't studied closely for some time, at least not all of us together in this context and setting. I'd like to introduce this new series and its major theme, but I'd like to do it with a demonstration of the natural phenomenon that we call gravity. Now, I know that this is something that we all felt this morning when we were trying to get out of bed, so perhaps this demonstration is a bit redundant, but nevertheless, I'd like to give you guys yet another way of visualizing it, so I'd like to welcome a couple of volunteers up to the front. Lucinda and Patty, would you mind joining me here? Let's give him a round of applause. All right. So what we have here is a hoop covered with an elastic sheet. Let's turn that around, um, all the way around. Yeah, there we go. And this hoop with the elastic sheet, as you can see, thanks guys, uh, this represents the fabric of space-time. So it represents reality. Now in reality, this would be in three dimensions, but as you can see, this is just flat. So try to visualize what happens here today um, in three dimensions, even if it's only two for now. By the way, I just wanted to say that, you know, Patty and Lucinda and all the other people in the office, Marilyn and Kathy and Lisa and Bob, they basically hold my world together. So them holding up the fabric of space-time seems very appropriate to me. <laughs> seems very appropriate. But what I wanted to show you guys with this today is an example or a little snippet of what Albert Einstein theorized when it came to gravity. He theorized that objects of mass actually bend space-time around them 
and cause other objects around them to feel the effects of that bending. The effects of that bending is really what we call gravity. So gravity isn't so much a force as it is a description of what is happening to reality when objects of mass encounter it, are, are placed on top of it. So for example, I have these pink table tennis balls, sorry, table tennis balls that are hollow and uh, you know, have very little mass, very little weight at all. If I set that on the fabric of space-time, you can see that it just rolls in a straight line or if it rolls at all, at times it can just sit still. Nothing is really acting on it and it's not really acting too much on this piece of fabric here. Right? If I put more than one ball too, they just kind of glance past each other, it doesn't really matter. They don't have really any kind of influence on each other at all. But if I take something of greater weight, of greater mass, like this medicine ball here, which is filled with about three pounds of sand, right? if I place that in the center here, you can see that it begins to deform, it begins to bend the fabric of space-time. And if I reintroduce these ping pong, sorry, table tennis balls <laughs> of lesser mass, of lesser substance, you can see that they no longer travel in a straight line if they travel at all. They travel in looping circles. Now we would refer to these as orbits if this was reality, if we were talking about the vacuum of space. But as you can see, these balls here, as they lose energy, they begin falling into the gravity well that is created by this three pound weight. You see that? That's because this object of greater mass bends the fabric of reality such that other objects of lesser mass are forced to be drawn into its center. So you can see that these balls, whatever color they are, they end up in the center, trying to get to the center of gravity, the very center of that three pound ball. And that's gravity. So why don't we give a round of applause to our assistants here who held up my world right now. Thank you very much. We appreciate you guys so much. So the big question then that you're probably wondering right now is why on earth are we talking about gravity today? Why are we discussing this topic, which I'm sure many of us were happy to forget in our high school physics classes? I know I was in particular. Well. It turns out that gravity has a lot to do with the sermon series that we are launching today because the text that we will be studying is all about the glory of Jesus Christ. And for the biblical authors, there was a direct connection between glory and gravity. Much of the Bible was written in ancient Hebrew, as I'm sure many of you know, and even the parts that weren't, those parts were written by people who had studied the ancient Hebrew parts. And in ancient Hebrew, the word for gravity or weightiness is koved. <laughs> Not to be confused with covid, but koved. It turns out that if you keep the consonants, the root of this word, koved, and change the vowels, you get kavod, the Hebrew word for glory. And because of the way Hebrew works, this means there is a conceptual link between gravity, weightiness, and glory. When we think of the word glory, we typically imagine something bright and shining, something sparkly and shimmery. The biblical authors, however, also thought of things that were heavy 
and substantial. Things that would be hard to move, things with mass, things that pushed back if you pushed on them, things that could bend reality around themselves and draw other things into their center. So just as a side note, I just wanna give you guys this encouragement. If anyone observes that you've gained a little weight during this holiday season, you have biblical support for a body positive attitude. You didn't gain weight, you gained glory. <laughs> glory and gravity were related in the mindset of the biblical authors. So throughout the Bible, we see the glory of God expressed not only in the light and life emanating from his person, but in his immovable and unchangeable and undeniable presence. In his presence, which demands and deserves the surrender and submission of all reality around him. God is the person of greatest mass, of greatest weight, of greatest gravity in or outside of space-time, in or outside of creation. As the psalmist put it in Psalm 97, three to six, which we've read a bit of uh, at the call to worship, the, the writer wrote, his lightnings, God's lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. The glory of God bends reality around him. Even mountains melt like wax before the Lord. His gravity draws all reality to himself, and that includes not only the mountains, but also the human heart. That includes our hearts and our minds, our lives, our churches, our work, our families, our entire world. And as reality bends around his glory, some parts faster than others, all things find their proper place, the orbit for which they were created. And that is what we, the study we are beginning today is ultimately about. Bending our lives around the glory of God. Recentering ourselves around the glory of God. And that glory has been most fully revealed, not in astrophysics or the solar system, no. The glory of God has been most fully revealed in Christ Jesus. It is around Christ's glory that we center ourselves. And I can think of no better theme for us to look at as our planet continues its orbit around the sun into the year 2022. I can think of no better theme for people like us who have been spending the last several years or more even watching the world around us spinning faster and farther out of control, spinning itself into pieces like a spinning plate that has lost its center on the tip of a finger, leaving us bracing for when it all comes crashing and shattering to the ground. And maybe, maybe for some of us, or maybe even for many of us, that plate has already shattered. At least it's certainly starting to crack. Our world has already been broken to pieces, pieces with jagged edges that no longer come together in a recognizable way. For some or many of us, maybe even all of us, our world has lost its center. It's at least begun to wobble a bit and the parts of our lives that once held together are now fragmented. And maybe that loss of center is showing up in our hearts and the way that we feel. Maybe some of us feel more anxious, more uncertain than before. Maybe some of us feel more depressed 
more disconnected. Maybe we feel less hope and less joy and less peace and certainly less love. Maybe we are grieving that loss of center, grieving and stunned and even angry at things, at how they have fallen apart. And maybe we're tired, tired of trying to keep the pieces together, what pieces we can pick up from the wreckage. But into this mess, into the wreckage of a global pandemic and economic uncertainty, job insecurity, unpredictable school schedules, the constant threat of infection and disruption, chaos in our society, violence on social media, racial violence, emotional violence, spiritual violence. And to all this, the word of God comes to us and the word of God reminds us of who is truly at the center of all things and of how he truly holds all things together. And out of the wreckage, we can rebuild. We can rebuild lives recentered on God, lives held together by the gravitational pull of Jesus Christ, who puts all things in their proper place. And so I want to invite you, brothers and sisters, right now, just to take a moment with me to pray over this, this sermon. Not just this sermon, but the entire series, however long it takes for us to work our way through it to pray that this, exactly this would happen. That as we look into God's word, we would be rebuilt slowly but surely for the first or maybe the thousandth time as people centered on Christ, centered on his glory and pulled together by his gravity. So let's just take a moment and let's just pray for this sermon series. Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, with hearts that are in desperate need of your repair, of your recentering, of a vision of your glory that pulls us together and reminds us of what life is truly about, what church is truly about, what we are truly about. God, we need this again and again and again, so we pray that you would provide this again and again and again with each part of this series and every sermon that we hear from this pulpit. Lord, for the months and years to come, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you haven't already guessed it by now, from the slide that's been sitting there on the screen, the new study that we are beginning today is in the letter to the Colossians. You can find this letter in the New Testament after Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians. If you start seeing T names, you've gone a little bit too far. We don't write or read too many handwritten letters these days, so it might be helpful for us to think of this letter as something like one of those multi-paragraph emails that you, that you get from your best friend, just updating you on all kinds of things, sharing deep thoughts that they've had since the last time they saw you, and maybe even asking for help with this or that project. Every email begins with a header which identifies who sent the email and the intended recipients of the email. This letter starts the same way. Its first two verses serve the same purpose as an email header, and this is where we are going to begin our study of the letter to the Colossians. Now, when you open an email, when you open an email, scanning through the header takes just about three seconds. So why are we using an entire week to look at this letter's opening? Why did I beg the other pastors for an extra week just so that we could walk through two verses together? Why am I preaching a sermon from the first century equivalent of an email header? 
Well, because the impact of Christ's gravity on the lives of God's people can and should be felt even in the smallest details of daily life. In every letter attributed to Paul in the New Testament, we can feel the pull of Christ's gravity on his life, even in the way that he wrote the headers, his letter openings. And the first two verses of this letter to the Colossians are really no exception. These two verses can be further divided into three parts, a part identifying the senders, a part identifying the recipients, and a brief word of greeting. And each of these three parts points to Christ, as I hope we'll see this morning. Verse 1 identifies the authors of this letter as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Although Paul and Timothy are both named here as senders, it's really unlikely that Paul and Timothy contributed equally to its content. You see, in those days it was common for letters to be written by dictation. The final verse of this letter, for example, Colossians 4.18, it confirms for us that Paul did not write most of this letter with his own hand. It reads, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. By saying that he wrote just this greeting, just this verse with his own hand, Paul implied that he hadn't written the rest of the letter this way, and that is where Timothy comes into the picture. Timothy likely served as Paul's secretary. He probably took dictation as Paul worked out what he wanted to say in the letter. Now, of course, Timothy would have agreed with the content of what Paul dictated being Paul's apprentice. So whether Timothy's inclusion in verse 1 is proof that he took Paul's dictation or that he was simply united with Paul in his message, his name belongs right where it is. But that being said, just as a point of clarification, for the remainder of this series, I'll be referring to the author of this letter as Paul, since it appears that he is the primary writer or the uh, source of its content. So what did Paul have to say about himself? How does he introduce himself? How does he identify himself? Paul identified himself in verse 1 as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, the English word apostle comes from the Greek word apostolos, which simply means messenger or delegate. Those would have been accurate translations. A person who is sent by another to deliver their message on their behalf with their full authority. When a person heard something from an apostle, it was as if they were hearing from the person's, the apostle's sender directly. In this case, Christ was the sender. And by the will of God, Paul was the sent, the apostle. And many of us know how Paul became an apostle of Christ Jesus. We know that he had had a dramatic conversion experience. Paul had once been Saul, a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish religious leadership in the first century who specialized in the study of God's word. Specialized in it, but maybe missed a few things along the way. Saul had persecuted Christians, hunting them down, imprisoning them, and even approving of their execution. But on one of his hunts, while on the road to Damascus, Christ Jesus appeared to Paul, I'm sorry, to Saul, and gave Saul a glimpse of his resurrection glory. And his glory completely overwhelmed him. It completely overwhelmed Saul. Saul's life was rearranged by the gravity of Christ Jesus' glory. And what was rebuilt in Saul's place was Paul, a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Christ laid upon Paul a new calling, not to stamp out the gospel, but to spread it. The gravity of Christ 
rearranged Paul's life, and it reshaped and reoriented his self-identification down to the greetings he wrote in his letters. What once might have read Saul, Pharisee extraordinaire, preserver and defender of Judaism, it was replaced by Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. So already in the first verse of this letter, in the seemingly rote detail of jotting down the return address of this letter, we see the impact, the gravitational pull of Christ on Paul's life. And that brings us to the second part of the letter opening. The first line of verse two identifies the recipients of this letter to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. And of course, that word brothers can also imply sisters. It's an inclusive term there. Colossae was a city in Southwest Asia Minor, as you can see from the map. And this city had once been an important center for business and commerce. For some time, the city had sat on the intersection of highways, major highways that crisscrossed the region. But when some of those highways were rerouted through Laodicea, a neighboring town just about 12 miles to the northwest, Colossae began to lose its significance. It began to lessen in importance. Colossae's time in the sun, however, had left an enduring impact on the city's population. People from all over the Roman Empire had ended up in Colossae in their pursuit of wealth and opportunity, job opportunities and other such things. And they brought with them a wide variety of perspectives and cultures and languages and even philosophies and religions. We have evidence that the people of Colossae worshiped all kinds of beings, all kinds of beings. Everything from the Greco-Roman gods to even local historical figures and even to members of the Egyptian pantheon. There was even a large group of Jews living in Colossae and practicing their religion, their worship of Yahweh. It is likely that in this mix that these religions had at least some influence on each other and even possible that some began to outright mix and meld into some kind of conglomeration. By Paul's day, Colossae was a cosmopolitan city boasting a proud history and a diversity of cultural and religious perspectives. And I just have to ask, does this sound familiar to you guys? Does this sound a bit like maybe where we live? A bit like Cupertino? A bit like the South Bay in general? San Jose, Santa Clara, where I am. Amid all this multiculturalism were the Colossian Christians, the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. Once again, we see the gravitational pull of Christ in the opening of this letter. Christ is at the center of their identification. He is the primary thing the recipients of this letter share in common, their devotion to Jesus. That is what set them apart for God as his saints, his holy ones, and they had proven faithful so far in their commitment to Christ. And with that, we come to the third part of the letter opening, Paul's greeting to the Colossians at the end of verse two. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now it would be easy for us, especially for those of us who have grown up in the church speaking Christianese, to see this greeting from Paul as a disposable kind of throwaway line, as something like Christian small talk, something nice, but it's not really what he's there to talk about. But for Paul, words like grace and peace represented life-changing realities, realities that he had experienced for himself up close and personally. 
For Paul, the word grace referred to the unmerited, unearned, undeserved, and unending favor of God, his unfailing love, his unchanging commitment to his people. When Paul wished for God the Father to send to the Colossians his grace, his hope was that the Colossians would know just how deeply loved they were by God, that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of their hearts to see the goodness of God towards them. And as they saw and as they received more and more of this goodness and love, that they would be strengthened and empowered to persevere in the faith. This is how grace functions, brothers and sisters, in the lives of God's people, as Paul spelled out to his apprentice Titus in Titus 2, 11 to 13, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. For the grace of God has appeared, Paul wrote, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is God's grace to us, not only the forgiveness of our sins. Sometimes it gets pigeonholed into just that. I mean, just that, right? It's a huge thing, but it can still be limited for some reason in our minds to just the forgiveness of sins, but it isn't just the forgiveness of sins. God's grace to us is not only the forgiveness of our sins, but it is spirit-empowered training to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Not only is it mercy for our mistakes, but it is transformation from the inside out. It's not only release from our pasts, but it is hope for the future, for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we can say that grace saves us and trains us and fills us with hope for the future. This is the grace Paul wished upon the Colossians. And he also wished for them to receive the peace that accompanies grace. When we receive the grace of God into our lives, we find ourselves surrounded and supported by the love of God. Our past is forgiven, and our future is secured, so our present is made peaceful. Even if that peace is mixed with pain, we know that pain is neither punishment nor permanent. Grace assures us of God's unfailing love for us and points us to the promises that he will not fail to fulfill. So we can say that where grace thrives, peace prevails. And Paul wished both of these upon the Colossians. This was Paul's heart for all his fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, wherever they happened to live throughout the world. I mean, he wished grace and peace from God to the Romans, You can read it yourself. He wished grace and peace from God to the Corinthians and to the Galatians, yes, even to the Galatians, to the Ephesians, to the Philippians, to the Thessalonians, to his pastoral apprentices, Timothy and Titus, and to his friend and coworker Philemon. And in every one of these greetings, in every one of these blessings, Paul credited God our Father as the source. And in all but one of these greetings, Paul also credited the Lord Jesus Christ alongside God our Father as the source. So which letter was the exception? Which letter leaves out the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, perhaps surprisingly, this one. This one that is supposedly all about the centrality of Jesus, right? 
Paul's letter to the Colossians. In this letter, and in only this letter, Christ Jesus is left out of the greeting. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father, period, full stop. Why? Why did Paul leave Christ out of the blessing? Well, it's usually a bit risky to attempt to explain something's absence from a text. We can work with the words on the page with what's in front of us, but it's hard to explain why something that we would like to be there isn't. But in this case, I think the rest of the letter speaks for itself and suggests an answer, and that's what you see on your screen right now. Don't worry if you can't read it, okay? You're not supposed to be able to. That's the full text of the letter to the Colossians right there. And the rest of this letter speaks for itself and suggests an answer to this question, why was Jesus Christ left out of the greeting here as a source? And it all has to do with the reason why Paul wrote the letter in the first place. The body of the letter to the Colossians can be broken into four main parts, and the first part spans verses 1 to 14, there in the yellow, and includes the opening, the two verses that we've been looking at, and an introduction to the body of the letter. Skipping the second section for a moment, the third section of the letter there in purple, spanning Colossians 1, 24 to 2, 23, this is where we learn the reason that Paul wrote this letter in the first place living as they did in a city that was home to a wide variety of religions and philosophies, it turns out that the Colossian Christians were encountering individuals and groups who were trying to pull them away from their faith in Jesus Christ. These would-be influencers. They promised the Colossian Christians a version of the grace and peace that they were already enjoying. And they promised that if they listened to what they taught, the Colossians could be happier and more secure and even closer to God. So what was Paul to do? What was Paul to do about these influencers? How would he counter the offer from these influencers, these promises of greater spirituality, greater access to God, greater transformation, greater righteousness? Well, Paul's strategy was simple. Remind the Colossians of what God had already given them, of who God had already given to them, and of how this gift, this person, can do all and more than what these influencers promised. Paul's strategy was to remind the Colossians of who they already had received into their lives. And this is the point of the second section of the letter, Colossians 1, 15 to 23. There in the pink there. In this passage, Paul reminded the Colossian Christians of who it was they worshipped, of who it was they had attached themselves to, of who was living in their hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. He reminded them of who was going to see them through this life and bring them home to glory in the eternal kingdom of God. In other words, Colossians 1, 15 to 23 is a passage about the glory of Jesus Christ. And this passage serves as a center of gravity for the whole letter. The first part of this letter is about the impact Christ had already had on the Colossian Christians' lives. The third part is about Christ's superiority to the religions and philosophies on offer in Colossae. And the fourth and final section spanning chapters three and four is about the transformation Christ brings about in the lives of his people, starting from the individual and moving to their local church, their family, their work, and ultimately the world around them. At the center of all this is Jesus Christ. 
It is Christ, Jesus' glory, that holds all of it together, that makes all of it possible. It was Christ's glory that shaped and directed and empowered the change and the hope in the Colossian Christians' hearts. It's because of Jesus that the Colossian Christians had been forgiven and were being filled with love and would hold on to hope until the very end. And so we can say that the glory of Jesus Christ is at the center of this letter. It is the center of Paul's message to the Colossian Christians, and it is the answer to our question about Paul's greeting to them. Why did Paul leave out the Lord Jesus Christ as a source of blessing, uh, as a source of grace and peace? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the grace and peace from God our Father. He is the one through whom we receive grace, and he is the one through whom we receive peace. He is grace and peace in our lives. In every other letter written by Paul, grace and peace come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, arguably more than in any other letter Paul wrote, Paul presents Christ Jesus as the grace and peace God has given, as the content of this blessing. And as we said again and again during Advent season, Christ is the gift. Amen? Amen. So in these two verses, the opening of this letter, we already feel the gravitational pull of Christ. We are reminded of how Paul's life was transformed by his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. And we are reminded of Christ's gravitational pull among the Colossians as witnessed in their enduring faith in a majority non-Christian culture. And we are reminded of the grace and peace God brings into the lives of his people when Christ is at the center. And as I read these two verses, I can't help but ask myself, I couldn't help but ask myself as I studied it on my own, where is my center? What is the center of gravity for my life? What is the one thing that pulls the pieces of my mind and the pieces of my heart and the pieces of my life and my family, my work and my world? What pulls these things together? In the Psalms, David prayed, God, unite my heart to fear your name, suggesting that he himself felt his life splintered in all kinds of directions and he was looking to the glory of God to draw these pieces back together into the whole that they were intended to be. What is my center? That's the question I couldn't help but ask myself. Is it the gravitational pull of Christ? Or is it some various set of competing objects competing things of seemingly great mass and importance pulling me in all kinds of other directions? What forces drive my decisions? What forces shape my plans, cause me to bend around their reality and to make them the center of who I am? Where can I feel the pull of Christ in my life? And what parts of my life are in orbit around his glory and what parts of my life are not? And even as I ask these questions of myself, I, I wonder how they might apply to our church as well. Is Christ the center of our church? 
is a gravitational pull of his glory shaping who we are as a body, how we think as a body, how we feel as a body, how we work and live and move and breathe and have our being as a body, what we do as a body, how we spend our resources, how we respond to the world around us. Is our church characterized by grace and peace, the grace and peace that come from having Christ at the center? What is in orbit around him and what is not? Now, these are big questions to attach to just two verses, of course. But these are the questions that I hope will be raised again and again throughout our study of Paul's letter to the Colossians because they are the natural response to the glory that are presented within. In raising these questions, I'm not suggesting that the answers are all negative. I raise them not because I have a taste for criticality, though my wife seems to think I do, (laughs) or because I enjoy doing the hard work of reflection and repentance. I gotta be honest, it's not always pleasant for me. I don't bring it up because it's enjoyable or easy or fun, but because we live in a world that is fragmented, because we live in a world that is splintered in a thousand different directions and nearly all of them fall away from Christ's glory. And amid the fallenness of this world, our natural instinct is to fall with it. It's to fall with it. Our natural instinct is to fall to the gravitational pull of worldliness, of greed, of anger, of instant gratification, the pull of worldly success and wealth, the pull of power and control and manipulation, the pull of distraction and repression and entertainment, the pull of sin and of death, and yes, even of Satan himself, the prince of the power of the air. These things do not have the glory that Christ does, certainly not, as we will see over the course of this letter, but imagined gravity is just as effective on the human heart as real substance when it comes to to, to how we live our lives and who we put at the center of them. And so we have to ask these questions of ourselves. We must ask ourselves where our center is and whose gravitational pull we submit to in our lives. We must ask ourselves these questions as individuals and as a church, not in the voice of the accuser, no, not in the voice of the adversary, but in the voice of love, the same love that moved Paul to seek grace and peace for the Colossians, the same love that moved Christ to seek grace and peace for this world to pick up its broken pieces and to rebuild us around his glory. And that is my hope, brothers and sisters, My hope for this series and for every series and individual sermon that you hear delivered from this stage, from this pulpit, that we individually and as a church would be continually rebuilt around the glory of Jesus Christ. That we would be continually recentered and continually reoriented around his gravitational pull. That the pieces of our lives would find their proper place in orbit around his reality. And that through it all we would be filled with grace and peace from God our Father. And I personally believe that this is what God has already been doing at PBCC. As my spiritual director likes to say, God is always previous. He is already at work and he has already been at work at PBCC. And I believe one of the things that he has been doing in the short time that I've gotten a chance to witness is that he has been gently but consistently turning our attention to the glory of Jesus Christ. You guys have noticed it, haven't you? 
God has magnified Christ in Bernard's preaching from the book of Daniel. God has focused our attention on Christ through Sean's preaching of the gospel of John. God centered Christ through our team preaching during the Advent series, and those of us who participated in Brian's Bible studies in the book of Ruth have been shown Christ in incipient form, born eventually from the faithfulness of a Moabite woman and a middle-aged man. And now God has brought us to Paul's letter to the Colossians, where Christ is fronted, put on display at the center of all things. And so it is clear to me that there's a common theme that God has been reinforcing through the teaching at this church again and again and again, and it's that he is wanting us to take special care, as Paul would later put it in this letter, to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And what better time to do this than the beginning of the new year? What better time to do this than in the middle of an unending pandemic? What better time to do this than the end of the Advent season in which we celebrated the arrival of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago? What better time than now to bring to God the pieces of our lives, however broken or whole they may appear to be, and to let Christ pull them together into all they were meant to be. In the coming weeks, we'll take a closer look at the impact Christ has on the lives of God's people, and we will be reminded that recentering our lives around his glory is a journey that stretches out over a lifetime. And we will, God willing, think and feel more deeply about the glory of Christ as the center of the universe and of the church. In other words, we're gonna get through the first 20 verses of this letter. But for today, we begin with the question, which I encourage all of us to roll over in our minds throughout the coming week, where is my center? Where do I feel the gravitational pull of Christ in my life? Where do I need to feel the gravity of Christ? It is our commitment to surrendering to his gravity instantly and totally and humbly like table tennis balls on a tablecloth. This is what identifies us as God's people. Now please receive this benediction. As you head into the new year, 2022, still reeling from all the changes that we experienced in 2021, may God fill your lives with grace and peace from his fatherly heart through the Lord Jesus Christ to bend and center your lives around his glory. Be well.